All right, my beautiful angels, welcome to episode 70. Today I'm going to be talking about sleep, the importance of sleep, some fun sleep facts, all things sleep and brain health related. So I think you guys are going to like this one. I have had a few requests on it and I also think I've been banging on about this for a while, like kind of dangling the carrot, saying how much I'm going to talk about this, you know, sleep episode. So here it is. Let's do it. So pretty much the reason I as one of my like first brain science deep dive brain facts hacks episodes, I thought sleep would be the perfect topic to kind of delve into because it kind of is the foundation for all kinds of health, physical health, um, you know, maintaining a healthy weight, uh, mental health, uh, protection against neurodegeneration, happiness, focus, productivity, um, your relationships, everything that you can imagine that happens in life boils down to having good sleep. It's probably, if not the most important human behavior that we do ever by far, because really when you look at everything else, it kind of doesn't really, you know, like when you look at all other things that you do for your health, if you don't have solid sleep, it's kind of like, yeah, it's good, but you're still going to suffer in so many areas of your life. Sleep is linked to everything that we do. And with solid sleep, you're going to find that your life is going to change for the better. It is absolutely phenomenal. It's exciting. What I'm going to be aiming for in this podcast is definitely not to scare you or terrify you if you're someone that doesn't sleep that well. My aim is not for you to be like, I'm fucked. I might as well give up. That's not at all what I'm doing. What I would like to do is for you to maybe be able to identify things in your life being like, wow, that sounds like me or oh, I do that or I do that. So that way you can be way more aware and start to implement some changes within your lifestyle, within your patterns and your habits and maybe your sleep hygiene and all these things to kind of clean up your sleep because, you know, it's it's never too early to really start to work on your sleep, Okay. And um, yeah, I'm just really hoping that this podcast is what inspires you to make that change in your life if you're not already a strong sleeper. Okay, so what I kind of wanted to do first is maybe go into the a bit of like history on, on sleep and how it actually has dropped down um, with like the average sleep time. Then I'm going to go into some facts about you know, some general facts about sleep and sleep time, sleep cycles. Then I'm going to go into circadian rhythms. I'm going to talk about blue light and the effect of blue light and red light and all of that on sleep. Um, And then what lack of sleep can cause like weight gain, addictive behaviors, um, poor memory, mood disorders and neurological illnesses and degeneration and all of that. So exciting times. Let's try and pack it all in. So let's begin. Kind of sleep and how we've perceived it across the ages. So I was actually listening to a really, really great TED talk. Um, I've got to, I'll pause this in a bit. At the end, I'll I'll get back to you on what the guy's name was because he's a circadian neuroscientist. He's a phenomenal guy, so I need to credit him. But he released a TED talk and he was talking about how um, the perception and how humans have have, you know, perceived sleep has changed across the ages. When you look at like old, old literature and plays and poets, the way they talk about sleep is almost like this mystical, magical thing that we do and it's kind of healing and whatever and then you wake up. So we had quite a positive relationship with the concept of sleep, even if we didn't really know what what it was. Then you look at as technology got got better and better and better, 
our sleep got worse and worse and worse. So first you had the invention of, of course, electricity. So you're able to like pierce through the night and you've got light whenever you want it. Then we had, you know, obviously decades later we had television, but even television at one point, I think even until the 70s, would literally be like, good night, bye-bye, and the TV would just be off and there'd be nothing on during the night. Then TV started going throughout the night. Then we had the internet. Then we had our mobile phones with internet, with entertainment. And now you look at where we are now. We've got absolutely everything on demand. So we have at our disposal everything we want to be able to be entertained no matter what time of the day it is when we are not designed to be that way. I'm going to be talking about circadian rhythms and how we've got this internal body clock that is locked into place. Um, no matter what you do, we've got that clock and it is based around the sun, okay, and the sunlight and all of that. But anyway, I'll talk about that later on. So we then started seeing sleep as like, you know, almost a burden of like, you know, we, we oh, it's annoying that we have to do it. We kind of, if you look at the motivational speakers of like how to make it in business and how to make it in your career. A lot of it is like, I'll sleep when I'm dead or sleep, you know, sleep faster if you want to achieve things. But all that was really doing is creating this, you know, notion of like glorifying being busy. And this is just something that I think about society that we need to kind of change in our society, that being busy all the time is something that you, that people should aspire to do. I think we feel like bad if we're not busy and it's like a negative thing to not be busy. So then because of that, we looked at sleep as kind of being this kind of weird behavior that we had to do, can't really avoid, but let's just limit it. Let's just stay up late into the night and work really hard. Let's wake up really early and pump ourselves full of stimulants so we can function throughout the day. When in reality, we didn't like pause to think, wait a minute, what if I was to actually sleep properly, really mend my sleep patterns, really like get some good sleep hygiene and see how that could positively affect my life? Because what you're going to realize after you listen to this episode is that if you sleep more, obviously within reason, I'll, I'll explain ideal sleep times in a sec, but if you sleep the right amount, which is probably in most cases more than what you're already sleeping, you're actually going to have to, or not have to, you will be able to work a lot less because you're a lot more focused, a lot more productive, and your memory is intact, okay? So it's very, very counter counterproductive or counterintuitive to sleep less to work more. You literally do not get ahead. Not at all. You think you do, but the work that you're doing when you should be sleeping is average at best. And the memory consolidation that should be happening when you should be sleeping isn't happening. Okay. So then you, that then it's got this carry on effect. Poor memory is linked to so many mood disorders and neurological disorders and memory consolidation occurs when you sleep. So then you get, you start to understand how, you know, um, sleep can then be quite heavily linked to mood disorders as well. So that's kind of the history of how we've, you know, perceived sleep. Now it's getting a lot better. We're getting a lot more science around why we sleep. And it's not just to like, you know, it's not just for some downtime or to pr preserve some energy. There's so much that goes on when we sleep, consolidation of memory, clearance of toxins, um, um, neuro like plasticity, synaptic pruning when necessary. There's all these things that are going on, like supportive roles that other cells play within the brain when we're asleep that might not happen when we're awake. The brain is just as active and in, at times more active when we are asleep. It does not fully rest. It just switches modes and, and goes into like recovery and prevention and preservation mode kind of thing when we're asleep. Now, 
what are the what are the ideal sleep times for people because it 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 varies as you go through your stages in life and what I read this really interesting um, uh, paper that humans in general, humans, adults, um, at least in like first world countries where, you know, you've got access to all technology and everything like that, we've actually dropped down. We're sleeping on average in the last, I think, 50 years, two to three hours less per night. That's terrible. Like that's really, really bad. So what are the ideal sleep times? We've got, okay, I'll I'll talk about different populations. For babies, it's around 14 plus hours. They need a lot of sleep. There's a lot of um, neurological um, things going on in the brain, neuro, like synaptogenesis, neurogenesis, all these connections that are occurring. So they need a lot of sleep for that. Then children up to the age of 13 need about nine to 11 hours of sleep. There's a bit of leeway there. And then we've got teenagers and teenagers need eight to 10 hours of sleep. I think we're so used to thinking teenagers are more like adults than they are like children. But when it comes to sleep, they are more like children and they need more time. And for whatever reason, uh, teenagers are more wired to go to bed a little bit later and to wake up a little bit later. That does not make them lazy. That is their circadian rhythm and their clock. That's just how they're wired. And they need that sleep. So I don't care what anyone says, I don't care what parents think about their child or whatever, they're trying to pump up their child with so many activities and whatever, they still need about 10 hours of sleep for a lot of them because there's a lot of changes that go on in the brain when you're a teenager. Around 14, 15, your brain is going through this huge wave of synaptic pruning to make your brain more efficient. Also, there's a huge link between, there's a lot of mood disorders that arise at around the same time that your brain is going through a lot of neurological changes, like like we're talking physical changes are happening in the brain. And around that time, there's this massive surge of mood disorders, anxiety, stress, and depression around that age of 14 and 15. And there's a huge kind of link between this because Depression and mood disorders are also linked with lack of sleep. And the lower your hours of sleep, the higher the rate of a mood disorder, okay? So it's really important that when children are going through this stage, especially if they're changing schools, they're going from primary school to high school, they're having all these neurological changes occur in the brain, they need to, at the very least, be getting a good night's sleep. So that's something to be mindful of if you have children or if you're a teenager right now listening to this you have to be mindful that at that age, sleep is what's going to actually be a preventative mechanism towards some sort of neurological disorder because of all the changes that are happening in your brain. Now, adults need seven to nine hours sleep. That's like an average. Everything I'm talking about here is an average. You're going to have some outliers here and there, but it's seven to nine hours. Older adults, it's the same. I think some people think that it's less or more. It's the same, but older adults might have more broken sleep where they might have like a nap, uh, you know, here and there, but it is the same amount of time. Now, what I want to talk about is sleep cycles because we cycle through these four stages of sleep and we do it about on a, in a good night's sleep. We do all those four stages, four to five cycles throughout the night. Okay. So stage one is a light sleep and that's kind of where you almost awake, but you're not. And it kind of feels like, you know, that where you're kind of fading off. And then if someone was to talk to you, you almost wouldn't be able to remember what just happened, but you know that you weren't asleep. That's, that's 
stage one. Your heart rate is already slowing down, all of that. Stage two is just even deeper. You're now already asleep. Your your body temperature starts to drop a bit. Your heart rate's even slower. You're, you're starting to really get relaxed in stage two. Stage three is your delta sleep. And it's called delta because of the slow delta brain waves that are happening at that point. And this is the stage of deep sleep. And here you're releasing human growth hormone for repair of muscles and different neurotransmitters and um, neurotrophins for repair within the brain. A lot of things are happening within the cerebral spinal fluid and there's a lot of clearance of toxins within the brain. All of that's happening in this stage three. And then you've got your stage four, also known as REM sleep stage, which is rapid eye movement sleep. And that's where your areas of your brainstem start to actually release some signals and chemicals to actually paralyze your body to an extent so you don't physically act out your movements while you're in this REM sleep stage. And that's where you're getting your most vivid dreams. Your your brain is very active at this point. Your eyes are actually moving a lot. So the only muscle that's really not sent that paralyzed kind of message from the brainstem is your eyes um, because they're darting around, but your body stays still. And really interestingly, there is these REM sleep disorders where people actually act out their dreams and it can be actually quite violent, but they're fully, fully asleep and their movements don't wake them up. Normally for most people, if you do do this massive jolt, it will wake you up because it's not natural and we should normally be quite relaxed and only have like minimal movement, just like tossing in your sleep, but not acting out these, um, these dreams. Now, keep in mind that you're not still the whole night because you're not in that REM stage the whole night. You you cycle through this about four or five times. Um, and when you look at, when you wake up, sometimes we, when your alarm goes off and you wake up, you're thinking, oh my God, I feel like I just got hit by a truck. That's probably because you just got woken up in your REM stage in that cycle where you're in that deep, deep sleep. Your muscles are all paralyzed. You're just in this hectic, crazy dream, your brain's really in a different mode altogether versus when you cycle out at the top of that kind of cycle, if you imagine like a wave that dips up and down and when you're up, it's kind of the lighter stages of sleep. If you wake up in the morning at that light stage, you're feeling fresh, energized, revitalized, all of that. There are some apps that actually um, measure, I don't know how they do this, but they actually measure which state you're in and then you can set your alarm with a range of time and that app wakes you up when you're in your lightest phase of sleep. Um, so that, that could be something that you do. What I recommend though, is that you always sleep with the curtains drawn back. So you have natural light entering because that is what kind of triggers you to wake up is sunlight. So what's happening in the brain when we're actually falling asleep, we get a release of a hormone or a neurotransmitter. It's the same, but both of melatonin. Okay. Now melatonin regulates the sleep-wake cycle. When there's more production of melatonin, that's what triggers us to then get sleepy and fall asleep. And then the more we can suppress melatonin, the longer we can stay awake, which is not necessarily a great thing, but in general, that's how it kind of works. Melatonin, it's, it's very linked to the circadian rhythm, which uses the light-dark cycle to regulate your sleep patterns. So even most blind people have some detection of light within like their eyes. So the part of the brain which receives input about light and then communicates that to the brain, it's called the supra suprachiasmatic nucleus. And that is directly, it's literally directly next to the optic chiasm. And this is like a cross in the brain of where the two optic tracks converge, right? So there's a lot of signals to do with light that are coming in through the eyes 
above that nucleus and that nucleus then kind of sets off that circadian rhythm. So light and dark cycles of the sun and nighttime is what regulates your circadian rhythm. And there's a lot of studies that have been done about like shift workers and jet lag and all of that. And there's no escaping it. Our body is set to the clock of day and night. Fair enough. If you move to another country, you have to adjust to your new circadian clock, but that clock then adjusts to the day and night cycles. That's just how mammals are wired. I think all pretty much all species and plants are wired. That's just reality. You can't escape it. If you are a shift worker, your sleep is just not as good. It's not. Studies have been done. If you're a shift worker, you are your your chances of inflammation, your chances of lower immunity, your chances of cancer, all these things, they are just higher. Your sleep is poorer. You're more likely to be stressed. Again, I'm talking about population. See, I'm not talking about every single shift worker. But ultimately, if you're always awake during the night and you're always awake during and always asleep during the day, you are not going to have as good a sleep as somebody who's sleeping based on the circadian rhythm. That is just how it is. You are going against your natural genetic makeup. Okay. So it's super important to be aware of that. What's also really interesting is that is the link between cortisol and your circadian rhythm. So cortisol, as we know, is a stress hormone um, and it's actually quite necessary. We need it, okay? The problem is when you've got heightened levels of cortisol at the wrong times or chronically throughout you know, the day or days or weeks or months, okay? That's when it becomes an issue. And I've spoken about this on previous episodes as well. But basically, cortisol production happens by this complex network called the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, Okay. And if something is disrupting that HPA access, it also disrupts your sleep cycles. They're very heavily intertwined. And cortisol production has, you know, peaks in the day of when it goes up and and necessary peaks like for energy or for alertness. So one is in the morning around kind of 8 or 9 a.m. And then it's got its massive dips and lows. So one of them being midnight, okay? There's been all this study done on like, yes, I do sleep times, you know, seven to nine hours for adults and all of that. But what's also looked into heavily is being asleep before midnight. And there's a lot of studies and data to show the importance of being asleep before this time. And it could very well be because that is your lowest point of cortisol production. You want to be asleep at that time because that's when other things are happening in the brain. That's when you're not getting this stress hormone of adrenaline and, you know, fight or flight or or action or alertness. That is at its lowest and other areas of the brain are taking over. So once you start to understand the link between cortisol, stress, the circadian rhythm, day and night cycles, you start to realize why it is so important to sleep at night and ideally be asleep before midnight. You know, some people say 9 p.m. Not as long as you're kind of asleep before the lowest point of that cortisol, that's kind of what you're aiming for, all right? So I, I, I think that's really fucking interesting. And then, of course, there's a whole, you know, shit ton of things that's also going on in the brain. Like when you get that release of the melatonin, you know, based on, you know, the, the light and dark and all of that, there's also then the brainstem and the hypothalamus and cells here that are producing more of the inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA that I've spoken about a lot. It's the major inhibitory neurotransmitter. It's basically what inhibits activity throughout, like between cell to cell connection and firing and all of that. So 
when you get more GABA, it really helps you reduce activity. It helps you calm down, especially with your muscles. Everything's like more relaxed and it helps you sleep. It also helps you recover better. Okay. Your muscles and all of that recover if you have like a good release of GABA when you're falling asleep. Um, so the brainstem and the hypothalamus is quite heavily involved in, um, the onset of tiredness and falling asleep with those, you know, neurochemicals and everything. Now let's talk about the influence of blue light on your sleep. So just very quickly, I'll touch on different light waves, um, that are perceived through like by photoreceptors, photoreceptors are receptors for light in, within the eyeball. Um, we've got cones and rods. Cones are for color and rods are basically for light and dark. So the cones that detect color, they detect the different um, lights and the intensity of the light is based on the wavelength. The shorter the wavelength, like little up and down, like a little line is more intense. It's a stronger light versus like a, a long wavelength where the, where the peaks and, and dips are really high and low. So red light is kind of the most gentle, if you want to say, wavelength. Then you've got green, and of course you've got colors in between all of that. We talk red, then it goes orange, yellow. Then you've got green, which is medium, blue, which is shorter, and violet or ultraviolet is the shorter still, and it's the most intense and the most kind of damaging as well is the ultraviolet. But blue light forms part of white light that we get from the sun. The sun emits all of the colors in that spectrum, and that's why you know when it gets refracted, you see rainbows and all of that. But the blue light, the, the reason, oh, let's fucking hope I get this right. The reason the sky is blue is because the blue light actually re, it bounces off objects really easily. And that's why you get a lot of a, like a bouncing off and a refractory thing of blue light, which then projects upwards, which causes the sky. But the actual sunlight is obviously a white light and it's a mix of all the lights. That blue light suppresses melatonin. When we get blue light, we get a suppression of melatonin and that's what wakes us up. That's what keeps us in this alert, awake state. Okay. It's a good thing during the day to have that input of blue light, especially from the sun. One of the best ways to wake up and, and, you know, start your day strong is to be in outdoor sunlight. You want to have you know, sunlight entering your room. You don't want artificial lights. Get that light in. Don't look directly at the sun, obviously, but just be exposed to sunlight. It is the best thing to wake up the brain. There's so many health benefits you're going to get. There are people that have done all these studies on how it even like cures depression and anxiety to just bathe in the sun first thing in the morning. Okay. It's very good for you. It, it starts this kind of like cascade of events in the brain to wake you up and be nice and alert. Okay. Now, when is it a bad thing? The bad thing is when you have too much blue light at nighttime. Like I said, it suppresses melatonin. So if you're being exposed to a lot of blue light later on at night, you're not getting a good release of melatonin at night. You're not getting that bathing over of the brain of the neurotransmitters to help you fall asleep, GABA, all the, those things. And then you're not going to have a deep sleep. You're not going to get those deep cycles of sleep that I spoke about before. So what do we do? Okay. The first thing you want to look at is limiting the blue light before you go to bed. Ideally, two hours, but if you can't do two hours an hour, some people say you need to start limiting it from like 4 p.m. That's fucking ridiculous. If the sun is still up, it shouldn't really matter. The sun is emitting blue light. So if the sun is up, 
don't worry about being around blue light, okay? The problem is when the sun goes down, you have to mimic that for your circadian rhythm. When the sun goes down, that's when you need to be a bit more mindful about the blue light, okay? So that's when maybe an hour or two before you go to bed, you want to switch that kind of filter on all your devices. You might want to wear the blue blocking glasses. Um, You might want to also look at your light bulbs that you're using. The best light bulbs for to block out blue light or for no blue light are the incandescent light bulbs, but they're actually the worst for the environment. And the ones that are really popular LED and all of that have quite a strong blue fluorescent light that comes from it, but that's okay. Cause what you can do, you can still get those lights that are better for the environment, but you put like a filter over them. That's going to emit like a, like a red or an orangey glow that blocks out the blue wavelength. So it's still, you can get around that fine, but just be aware of that and, and do that. Also with your screens, the TV, everything is emitting a blue light. You can put a filter on it, but it might not filter out all the blue light. So one of the, if you're someone that struggles to fall asleep, you need to get rid of devices when you're going to sleep. I don't care what you say. It is an absolute must. You are kidding yourself. If you think that just a little filter, the nighttime filter is going to do the job, it won't. So what I recommend you do is you grab a book and you have a backlight, like a lamp that has like an orangey red glow that it's going to be the best thing to start releasing more melatonin. You're not too stimulated with, you know, a device. It's more a book. It's a lot more calming and you're able to fall asleep a lot easier doing it that way. Or you can listen to a podcast or something like that um, instead. Now I want to talk about what lack of sleep can cause. And the first thing that I wanted to touch on was weight gain because there was a lot of studies done, in particular in the United States, these studies were done, and it showed that people, and this is a wild statistic, people that get less than five hours of sleep a night, so five hours or less, have a 50% greater chance of being obese, okay? There is a huge link between lack of sleep and weight gain, and there's very good reasons to back up why that is. So firstly, let's touch on the neurotransmitters of ghrelin and leptin, okay? So remember, neurotransmitters are chemical messengers, okay? Ghrelin sets off signals to promote feeling hungry and leptin sends signals to make you feel full, okay? So you go through these cycles in the day whenever you need more nutrients, whenever you need, you know, more energy, calories, all of that, okay? Now, Sleep is critical for the regulation of these neurotransmitters, actually for the regulation of all neurotransmitters, but in particular, let's talk about leptin and ghrelin, okay? People who are sleep deprived have higher levels of ghrelin being produced and lower levels of leptin. So it kind of skews the production and it makes more of the hunger neurotransmitter and less of the hunger suppressor, okay? Therefore, you struggle to feel full. You struggle to feel like you have enough energy or calories, even though you do, it just doesn't feel that way for you. So it's not even about overeating or this and that. You might genuinely be like, I'm so hungry. And this could be because of a skewed release of the hormones and neurotransmitters that you're getting and not to do with the fact that your body actually needs those calories. And then the other problem, so you've already got this issue going on, right? It, you've got more ghrelin, less leptin, you're feeling more hungry, you're not as easily satisfied. And then on top of all of that, when you are fatigued, which occurs if you're getting less than your ideal amount of sleep, whether you feel it or not, you are fatigued, your body starts to work differently. The part of the brain that controls impulses 
does not work as well, nowhere near as well. So you struggle to control your impulses. And at the same time, because of the decrease of um, impulse control in your prefrontal cortex, more activity in the amygdala, which is the emotion center, you're seeking out more um, reward or fun-seeking behaviors. You start to really seek these out. And when this happens, you're more likely to want fatty, sugary, calorie-dense, salty foods to satisfy these like thrill-seeking behaviors or reward-seeking behaviors. So it's this two-pronged effect that you're getting. You're getting lack of impulse control, an increased seeking of, of, um, of reward, which you then do in foods, like impulsivity, all of that. And then you're also feeling more hungry and you're struggling to feel full. So because of that, you are then obviously gradually daily gaining and gaining and gaining weight, even though you're trying to do everything to control everything to control your impulses and, and suppress these things. It's a lot harder to do it when your brain is constantly sending you signals being like, seek out these foods, seek out these foods. I'm hungry. I'm not full. I'm hungry. I'm not full. All this is happening likely because you are not sleeping enough. It's wild, but it's that simple. Now talking about this um, lack of impulse control, it then lack of sleep is then linked to um, stimulant overuse. So having too much nicotine all the time to kind of stimulate you throughout the day, all this coffee throughout the day, um, and then of course other drugs, and then of course things like later on in the night because you're overstimulated, you then do things like you're drinking alcohol to kind of calm down and relax. So we then start to have less of an impulse control because we rely on these stimulants and, and, and relaxants for us to get us through the day, to keep us alert and then to wind us down at the end of the day. The problem with that, obviously health problems, but the problem with that is we think that let's take coffee, for example, because I don't even think coffee is unhealthy, okay? Coffee is actually fine for your brain. But the problem is that we think that a stimulant equals brain performance. No, it doesn't. The only thing that's going to help you with your brain performance is a good night's sleep and a good diet and exercise. Literally, the fucking boring things that you've heard about for your whole life. That's the only thing that's going to increase, increase your brain performance, okay, on a daily basis. A stimulant makes you more alert. So you'll be buzzing, you'll be more awake, but your brain is not going to necessarily perform better, okay? So that 10th coffee isn't going to make you perform better than your first coffee, not at all, but you'll be buzzing more and you're less likely to fall asleep. So it will keep you awake. The same goes for nicotine, the same goes for other drugs, all these things, you know, we seek out. And because we've got less of an impulse control and we're feeling tired, we seek out the things that are going to stimulate us more. You notice that as you get a better sleep, you stop seeking out these things. Your behaviors start to change without even having to really force yourself or control yourself. And then separate to all of that, when people turn to booze at the end of the day to kind of calm down and to, you know, to start to slow everything down, you're, you're turning to a sedative. If you're taking a benzo, if you're taking a Valium, if you're taking alcohol to help you fall asleep, that's not helping you fall asleep. You are sedating yourself. That's not the same thing. And that's why if you take a Valium or a benzo or something like that, you might wake up feeling like, like shattered, 
Like, yeah, you slept, but it felt like you were almost like knocked unconscious until you woke up. It doesn't feel like a fresh, nice, beautiful sleep. You feel like, whoa, that was a bit hectic, especially if you take a little bit too much. The same happens with alcohol, because what happens is you are literally sedating yourself, but the natural onset of neurotransmitters and the suppression of other neurotransmitters isn't occurring naturally and properly like I was explaining before. You're literally just dulling down your system enough that you then just snooze off into an abyss okay very different the two things and just be aware of that so if you're always medicating yourself to fall asleep you need to seek other ways there are ways to supplement a little bit of melatonin but that's something that you need to be speaking to a doctor to get the right amount because you also don't want to be pumping yourself with too much melatonin um, and then like screwing up your body's natural production of it so it's definitely a great aid to actually help you fall asleep properly and naturally but just make sure that you're understanding what dose you need to be taking so you're not um, screwing up with your neurotransmitter system. Okay, another thing that happens with um, with poor sleep, you get things like micro-sleeps. You get lapses in judgment. Your reaction speed goes down dramatically. Accidents occur. There was this really interesting study that I had to focus on in one of my um, semesters, and it had to do with people that had been awake for longer than 17 hours, just 17 hours, had the same reaction time on the road, driving a car, than people that were above the legal limit of alcohol. And the reason why 0.05, at least in Australia, 0.05 or above is illegal is because your reaction time isn't good enough. Okay. It's not good enough to swerve out of something or to hit the brakes or just to react just in general to lights, to different things. And you are a hazard on the road. However, when you are, when you haven't slept for 17 hours, the same effects occur. So it just goes to show why so many accidents on the road are due to sleep deprivation because they literally, your brain starts to mimic similar behaviors as when you're too drunk. It's really quite hectic. Another thing that happens is you have poor memory. Your memory starts to go down because when you are asleep, your brain is consolidating your memory. Everything that you've learned in that day is now getting like packaged quite nicely into your memory. And this is, a lot of scientists believe, sleep scientists believe that this is why your dreams can be the way they are because not only are you consolidating the memory for the day, but you're also bringing it into this memory retrieval system. So it might have something to do with the part of the brain that's storing the memory is right next to the part of the brain that that can retrieve other memories. So you might get this weird mix of maybe something that happened throughout the day, but also something that happened ages ago with this and it, like a weird kind of mystical connection of everything. That's what they believe is happening when you're consolidating your memory and you're dreaming. And they found that people that are high, like really heightened anxiety have quite scary dreams or even nightmares versus people that don't have a mood disorder who might just have just weird, you know, dreams that they can't make sense of. If you are trying to increase your memory Sleep is the number one thing you need to be doing. If you're cramming for an exam, don't pull an all-nighter ever. It's not worth it because you literally don't end up retaining that information before the exam. It just doesn't retain. You'll hold on to maybe the things that you just did by like route learning, repetition, repetition, but concepts don't get retained. You know, ideas and concepts of how things flow together, that's not going to get retained and you're going to bum out on your exam. 
Pulling an all-nighter is the worst thing you can do for your memory and it is the biggest waste of time ever. The best thing you can do is study for a few hours and sleep a good night's sleep and then go into your exam. You're much better off doing that. And so that is with anything in your life. Your memory, how good your memory is, is a direct reflection of how good your sleep is, okay? And because of that, that is then heavily linked to a lot of mood disorders. If you have poor memory, poor memory is directly linked to a lot of mood disorders. Anxiety, stress, depression, that is all linked to not being able to rem- remember things. It impacts your work life, your daily life, your relationships, everything. And then you get more stressed, you're releasing more cortisol. Cortisol then inhibits you know, your ability to form new memories and to um, preserve your memories and to consolidate your memories. And there's your vicious cycle of anxiety, stress, and depression and poor memory. Okay. Hectic. I know it sounds hectic. Anyway, let's continue. More things, neurological disorders and illnesses. So things like schizophrenia, Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's disease, dementia, dementia with Lewy bodies. There's a whole more, like a much bigger range I won't go into, but these um, these degenerative diseases are all heavily linked to sleep disorders. Now, this is really interesting. So they found that, and this is what they were trying to figure out, and we're still not sure. In the science, it's still a big question mark. But does one cause the other? Or, for example, does all these sleep disorders end up causing the the um, degeneration, this particular kind of de- degeneration? Or... Was the degeneration already present but asymptomatic and the only symptom that you could see was through the sleep disorder? Like is that sleep disorder part of that degenerative disease that you're ultimately it's going to manifest out when you're 60 or 70? We're not quite sure yet, but what we've been able to figure out, and when I say we, I'm referring to scientists in that field, what they have been able to figure out is that you can at least look at the patterns within the sleep disorder. And if you can target the patterns of sleep disorder, you can then better, you can have preventative measures for that disorder later on. So it's still very beneficial to, if you do have a sleep disorder, to be getting that looked at as soon as possible because you can prevent the onset or at the very least learn how to manage something that's going to occur later down the track, okay? But when I talk about sleep disorders, that's different to sleep deprivation and lack of sleep. A sleep disorder is something like REM sleep disorder, like I was talking about earlier, where you can't control your movements in your sleep or where you're fully paralyzed, but you're awake, like sleep paralysis, things like that. Um, That's what I mean when I talk about a sleep disorder. Now, what can we do to improve our sleep? Okay. There's so many things that we can be doing and it all comes down to just the most basic, basic things. Number one, you want to get your circadian rhythm as as perfectly as possible, okay? Really time it with the day. So the, the first thing you want to be doing is wake up with the sun. And I'm not talking about like wake up before the sun rises. You don't have to do that. I'm talking about do not use blinds, do not use shutters. You want the sun to wake you up. That's going to start a natural release of the neurochemicals that you need to be alert and awake. That's number one. Get outside if you can in the natural daylight. Then you've got to look at your sleep hygiene at the end of the night. Everything I spoke about, blue lights, stimulants, things that are going to keep you highly aroused and suppress melatonin, you want to get rid of, okay? You want more like dim lights, books, less activity, less TV, things like a podcast or sleep sounds or sleep stories are phenomenal for that, okay? That's what you want to be doing. You also want to be exercising every single day. 
Exercising produces a neurotrophic factor called um, brain-derived neurotrophic factor that also really helps regulate your sleep as well. These neurotrophins that get released during intense exercise then also play a really positive role in how you sleep. Meditation is another great one. Meditation is what helps regulate your cortisol production levels. So the more you meditate, the more you link the brain regions with each other. You're getting the prefrontal cortex, which is the logical part of the brain, calming down the really um, emotional flight or fight cortisol producing part of the brain. Those areas talk a lot better with each other. They connect more and um, meditation really enhances that activity. It really enhances that and it really lowers down excessive production of cortisol. Meditation is never going to stop you producing necessary cortisol. You never have to worry about that. You're always going to have the proper arousal when necessary, but it will suppress unnecessary chronic levels of cortisol. When your cortisol levels are down, inflammation is down, you sleep a lot better. So it's this kind of, notice that it kind of circles back Everything circles back to that circadian rhythm, the production of, you know, melatonin, cortisol, when it's at its high, when it's at its low. So you need to be implementing all these things throughout your day. Again, as usual, always look at what is causing you stress in your life and eliminate, 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 cut the dead weight, cut the toxic people. Everything I speak about in my podcasts, when it's not even that deep dive into science, you need to do it for your own brain health as well. You hanging around with toxic people is doing you no favors. It's doing you a lot of disservices when it comes to your aging. And when I talk about aging, this shit happens earlier than you think. Okay, the onset of a lot of things happens way earlier than you think, decades before you even see any symptoms. So I know it's hard to imagine your future self, but try to and start doing things now. And the number one thing you need to start doing is cutting out stresses. And that includes toxic people, narcissistic people, bad situations, jobs that don't fulfill you and don't cause you, bring you happiness. Okay, what is stressing you? How can I get rid of it? Okay, it's not good enough to sit there and say, oh, Oh, you know, that's just how it is. Because if you just live your life just how it is, nothing's ever going to change. You have a lot more power and control than you give yourself credit for. So start to use that power, use that control, start to regulate things in your life so you're a lot happier, less stressed, you sleep better, you're happier, you're more productive, you're more creative, your relationships are better, you'll be living your best life just by learning how to really get your sleep down pat, okay? Mood disorders go down when your sleep is better, your anxiety drops, your depression drops, everything gets better, Oh, I love sleep so much. It's just incredible. Best thing ever. Also, very quickly, how do you know if you're getting enough sleep? Simple. If you need to use the snooze, you're not getting enough sleep. Okay? You should, and I I understand that it might be like a habit, but if you put it this way, if you have to hit the snooze more than once, you definitely are not getting enough sleep. If you wake up and you're shitty and aggravated, you're not getting enough sleep. If you don't want people to talk to you in the morning, you are definitely not getting enough sleep. And if you think that you can't function without a stimulant like a coffee, you are not getting enough sleep. Like I need my coffee in the morning, but purely because I love the taste so much. I can easily function without one though. So that's how it's got to be. It's fine to have the morning coffee. I love that shit. It's a great ritual. But ask yourself, why do I want this? Is it because I like the ritual and the taste and the little boost that it gives me? Or is it because I need it to function? They're two totally separate things. Guys, thank you so much for listening to this. I was, I've been so excited about doing this podcast. So much of my like 
love went into this episode. So thank you so much for listening. Please share, please rate and review, share it on your Instagram. You guys are so great at spreading the word of this podcast for me. Love you all so much. And as always, be kind to yourselves, be kind to your brains. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke.